Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks so much for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you would like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morningsun underscore fellow traveler, or just click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you. Hola a todos. ¿Cómo están ustedes? Estoy aquí pa, uh, con mi amigo Stephen Haas. I'm here with my friend Stephen Haas. He's not my friend, but we're acquaintances now. And yeah, he is thanks. from he is from Bolivia. You grew up there since you were three. Yeah, exactly. Sí, es es muy divertido estar en Bolivia. Me gusta vivir en Bolivia. Mm. <laughs> bueno. <laughs> y yo soy aquí en Massachusetts, los Estados Unidos. Y me gustaría discutir tu vida y tu um, viaje espiritual. <laughs> Muy bien. Gracias. I don't know okay. how much I don't know when people kidding, skip the beginning. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, I think I think it'll catch people's attention. Now that we've got your attention, welcome to the fellow traveler here, folks. I've got a very special guest. He is the curator of great interviews and uh, producer and director of some really cool videos called Love Unrelenting. That's your page on YouTube. Do you have a website? <clears throat> there is a website set up, yeah, but it um, mainly has uh, recommendations to other mm-hmm. uh, blog posts and videos and stuff oh, like cool. that. So it's not like a very complicated website, but there is a website. Awesome. Well, muchas gracias. Thank you very much for coming on, the fellow traveler. Here we like to talk about um, the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality and tradition, which tonight we're going to be discussing um, a topic that's rather fringe in in terms of spiritual tradition and and um, and spirituality. But what you may be surprised about is that even though it is a fringe um, topic and discussion and idea, it actually has a lot of historical roots in the church, in the early church, especially within the first 500 years. And back in the day in the Greek world and the Cappadocian fathers, um, they noticed this phrase that was in scripture called apokatastasis. And it's this term that means the restoration of all things. And you had many early church fathers like Origen and Gregory of Nyssa 
to name a few, who believe in this concept that um, through the gospel in Christ, all would be reconciled to God eventually, even if that means some sort of form of, of punishment or judgment. And that might be un that might be uncomfortable for a lot of people, and that's okay. <clears throat> I welcome you to sit and listen in, um, because we're going to hear Stephen's story around that topic, saying how he's devoted a good portion of his life to <clears throat> to discussing it, to opening up dialogue. <clears throat> and Stephen, you've talked to some really big names out there, big theologians like David Bentley Hart, <clears throat> and uh, have you, you've had uh, Brad Jerzak too, right? Yeah, I talked to Brad Jerzak as well before David Bentley Hart, actually. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Brad Jerzak's super cool. I had I had him on in December, and that was definitely my favorite, my number one interview so far. Just such a beautiful time. And Keith Giles as well. He just recently had a a um a debate with James White just yesterday. Very fascinating debate on. Biblical marriage, what does that mean? <laughs> Very interesting. Um, and who else? Robin Perry. I mean, all sorts of cool people. Andrew Horonich, right? Have you talked to yeah, him? Yeah, I talked to him a few months ago, or maybe just a couple months ago, yeah. He's super cool. He's wicked young. <clears throat> yeah. And yeah. just super articulate. I actually talked to him. He was one of my first interviews. And um, what are some other names? I don't know. There's a lot of great great theologians that you've talked to oh also my friend zach kersey from massachusetts what brought yeah you that was surprising that you knew him yeah yeah what, what brought you to massachusetts of all places um i'm it's okay it's niche story i'm interested in um when denominations interact with each other or when they i forget what the what was the exact word that, that they use for uh, no, I'm thinking of when when a church is literally part of two denominations, like one congregation is part of two oh. or three denominations. There's a word for it, and that really? church where he's at is one of those churches. And, yeah, um, he's got unit Unitarian Universalist Baptist and, and something uh, else. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, Congregationalist. The, three, well, all in one. Yeah, United Church of Christ, which came out of Congregationalism. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you. United Church of Christ, Unitarian Universalist, and Baptist. What a mix. <laughs> yeah. But the United Church of Christ, you can call them congregational sometimes because they come from congregationalism. Really? That's one of the two big groups that formed the United Church of Christ. That's but um, I'm trying to remember. That's too bad I can't remember the word for it. But there's another one in Winchester <clears throat> um, over in New England that um, it's a church that's United Methodist. Uh, Unitarian Universalist and United Church of Christ, and it actually has on their sign a symbol that combines the three symbols of the denominations. And I wow. always think that kind of stuff is interesting. And that does happen more in New England, from what I've seen, compared to other areas of the U.S. Because a lot of those really old oh, churches, yeah. I think, sort of had to. Uh, eventually, they're like, "Hey, guys, uh, we're getting along, and also we're kind of diminishing in people, so let's just." combined <laughs> yeah well that's what that's what happened because yeah in new england you have a lot of these churches that have ended up shutting down almost <clears throat> almost similar to what's happening in europe when i've gone to europe it's funny in scotland like you have all these churches these beautiful buildings and they're turned into nightclubs <laughs> yeah it's kind of hilarious and kind of sad at the same time because it is sad how um europe has become so secular and that's that's the direction that north east 
America is headed in. You know, we we do have a lot a long history. I mean, we have the Puritans. You know, the Pilgrims came here. You know, to Massachusetts, yeah. and they set set up shop, and yeah. they brought they brought their uh, Calvinism <laughs> and their pure and their Protestant work ethic. That's what they brought, amongst <laughs> other things, and some beautiful parts of the tradition, of course, too. Mm-hmm. You know, but anyway, it is fascinating. You do have a lot of these churches that, <clears throat> especially older churches, that kind of get scooped up in um, by these more progressive churches, oftentimes. So it's really interesting. Federated. That was a word. I'm sorry. Federated. federated. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> we have a federated church in, in Millbury where I grew up. Um, I oh, never yeah. even heard of federated i don't even know is federated like a denomination no it's when they it's when the church is federated between denominations so oh. in that case it's a it's a federated church of uc uh ucc and american baptist and uh oh okay uh, ua yeah i never knew it i never knew that because we had a federated church in in um Millbury, and I, I always wondered what that meant and maybe that's what it was maybe at one point it used to be one denomination then it kind of mixed with another but yeah, yeah. <clears throat> classic New England town, Millbury is, you know, with we got the Baptist church, we got a couple spatterings of Catholic churches, we got, um, and then I imagine, and then we have an old congregational church, and then we have the church that I grew up going to, which is this old abandoned mill, which is turned into this charismatic, non-denominational church, quite mm-hmm. the expression of Christianity, for sure there, <clears throat> um, as you can imagine. <clears throat> but anyway, Stephen Haas, I'm saying your name right? Yeah, Stephen Haas. I just yeah. watched the video of, uh, of you interviewing your father and why he capitalizes both letters, both the yeah. H and the A. That's hilarious. What a, how yeah. oh, idiosyncratic. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, I love it. So anyway, you find yourself in Bolivia. Well, you've kind of been there, but then you travel quite a bit. Here on... Um, on the fellow traveler, I like to um, hear people's experiences, especially in in terms of like, you know, we're all born. I, I have this to- this um, term that I I think I coined because I don't hear anybody else saying it, but spiritual heritage, and I might not have coined it. I might it may be maybe I'm just making stuff up, <laughs> but I use this term spiritual heritage as the starting point of my conversations because what's fascinating about that just like your genetic heritage, right? <clears throat> you, um, heritage or, uh, cultural heritage, you're born into it and you don't have a choice, right? It's, you're, you're kind of, um, brought up in it, <clears throat> but then at some point you have to either claim it as your own and absorb it into your own identity or reject it completely. And, and I think what's really fascinating is listening to people's stories of how they're born into a certain tradition and they they start to realize they might start to deconstruct their beliefs and and they start to realize that there are really some really rich good parts of it but then there's parts of it that they want to get rid of and what I'm curious about is why stay in the faith you know um, especially when when you come against so much that you may disagree with and um, and I'm also interested in people's experiences in their faith tradition what was it in their faith tradition that that made them stick with it you know um and and of course in your case what was it that inspired you to start producing content around the topic of universalism but um you know start from the beginning you your family your father and mother was were missionaries right 
yeah, my uh, parents decided to be missionaries a long time before I was born. They were drew to they were drawn to Bolivia uh, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was that my dad's aunt and uncle had already been here since uh, the late 60s or early 70s. I can't remember exactly, but they actually drove down here, which if you look on a map, it's very far away from the United States. It's a it's a long way to drive with a truck. And um, so my dad, he visited in the 80s and then um, he ended up marrying, going back to the U.S., marrying my mom. They became missionaries, evangelical missionaries uh, to Bolivia. Uh, I was born in the U.S., but I've lived in Bolivia most of my life, and uh, I enjoy being here. I did learn Spanish here, even though I went to an English-speaking school, but the church we went to is Spanish-speaking. I had a number of Spanish-speaking friends and as far as uh, like the denomination I grew up going to, it's uh, very, it's a specifically Bolivian denomination. It doesn't exist uh, anywhere else, but it's basically evangelicalism. It's basically an evangelical denomination. My mom came from a Quaker background. My dad came from also a peace church background, but he kind of grew up a Calvinist, but his his uh, parents and grandparents were brethren. Um, and so, you know, I grew up in just a very broad evangelical, in almost the most general sense you can have evangelical context. And um, yeah, I went from there growing up, always thinking about different positions that I, that I thought, hmm, maybe this part of what I'm learning at church doesn't make a lot of sense. Maybe this part does make a lot of sense. And, you know, you go from there, changing your positions little by little. In that case, I think it is a spiritual heritage is a little different than genetics and that I, I think you can change it a bit easier, at least at this point. I know they're working on some genetic stuff that maybe that'll get easier to change genetics, but at least at this point, you can change what you uh, hold to spiritually easier than your genes. And so, um, yeah, you know, you just go forward, picking up different ideas, uh, adjusting your positions. And eventually, uh, once I got to Christian Universalism and actually became convinced of it, I said, well, this is really the best news. <laughs> These people will, will say sometimes that it's the greatest news you could ever hear, you know, some or other presentation of the gospel, but you really, Christian universalism really is the best news because you can't surpass it in its goodness there. <laughs> there's nothing better than the best for everyone, eventually. There's, no, like, there's nothing better than that. Kind of like Anselm, how Anselm was like, God is that which there's none greater you can think of like the best sandwich than which you can think or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and yeah people use that anselm argument for universals if mm -hmm. god is the greatest you know maybe not being if you don't want to say being but if god is that which is the greatest then god would create a situation in which eventually at least the end would lead to the greatest uh, ending that could come about now, when you were younger, did you really feel convinced of the gospel and, and the story of Jesus and the idea of the church? Like, was that something that you really grasped to, or did you have some hesitation when you were younger? When I was a kid, I was yeah, pretty convinced of it. And then growing up, becoming a teenager, I got more and more into apologetics and thought, you know, I really want to be convinced of all the logical points of it. So then I started to have a lot of doubt. I wanted to read the biggest atheist authors. So I read the big atheists. I read Dawkins, Hitchens, Harris, and Dennett, and others. Uh, Victor Stenger is actually the one that, I, if I'm saying his name right, Victor Stenger, I think is, anyway, he's, he was the most 
convincing to me. God, the failed hypothesis is what it's called. That's the book that freaked me out the most, right? Went, oh man, maybe this really is a failed hypothesis, you know? Because he kind of approached it as a, a scientist in a number of ways saying, hey, you know, what is the soul if if it really, it seems like what a lot of Christians say the soul is, is just the brain. It's just, you know, we can mess with the brain in certain ways. And then, you know, it, it seems like you're basically destroying the personality of somebody and you're even destroying the person or messing with them in such a way where you change their desires and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there were a bunch of different arguments he had that were, that you know, they could freak you out after a while. But there's, you know, eventually there are different things that you, you know, you shift your position on a little bit. Maybe you could say even there's a great book by Greg Boyd, um, Benefit of the Doubt, which one of the things it lays out is it's okay to doubt when you're, it's okay not to be uh, 100% sure on all, all kinds of things when you're uh, trying to follow Jesus. And it's okay to, uh, you know, have the tide go in and out on how convinced you are in a number of things. And so that becoming, if you, it sounds like a circular reasoning a bit, but if you, if you are fairly convinced that the character of God is good, then you don't have to worry as much about whether or not um, your your quality of the faith in him is great because it's his goodness that you have faith in. You don't have faith in your faith in his goodness. You have faith in his goodness, period, right? And that is a, a, a more comfortable, a more convincing and a safer position to have than to say, I have to work on convincing myself of, of the goodness of God you know, or even the existence yeah. of God. Wow. That's really cool. I love that. And um, now when you were younger, like, you know, that's, it's really brave of you to engage those uh, voices. And did you feel, did you feel like you had permission to doubt like that when you were younger or explore uh, doubt? As far as my own family goes, yes. My dad is a Calvinist, but he's not what a lot of people would think of as a Calvinist, yes, he's super uh, nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> like he doesn't, like he's never in my life said, if you believe that you're going to burn forever. Like he's never said wow. anything like that, even though he does technically, he technically does believe in eternal torment. Uh, mm. He's never said that he thinks I'm going there, or I've never even heard him say this person specifically is going there, but he does believe that some people are going mm. to eternal torment. Yeah. Wow. But, the, but I, and my mom too was, um, you know, always, nice about doubts and conversation um wow. they were i guess on the i don't know what what the boundaries of evangelicalism are but they were very c.s lewis evangelicals you know sure the kind that they do believe in a mere they they did my mom died a few years ago so if i talk about her in the past okay. senses you know that's the okay. reason but they but um they were very you know mere christianity type evangelicals yeah. where they my dad was a calvinist my mom never claimed that and since she grew up quaker i i mean i never talked to her that specific quakers about it, are but, peaceful yes i mean you can still believe in eternal torment and i know quakers that do but even so they're not calvinists quakers are never calvinists <laughs> no <laughs> they're, they're, they're basically arminians even though some of them wouldn't use that term but some of them would they're basically arminians so my mom was more on that quaker end of things than my dad yeah and they, yeah. they, they, that worked for them because they were, they were very into just presenting the simple evangelical presentation of the gospel. My mom would do puppet shows for kids and my dad would uh, preach at various churches and stuff. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. 
That's amazing. So then you grew up into such a mixed tradition that it, it probably made it difficult to really find your footing and find like a foundation of like what you believe. And that probably, you think that led to you having these kind of questions of, about um, different views of hell or eschatology, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was too difficult because it was it was just a broad evangelical <laughs> um, position, but it it did mean that there wasn't like a, a very long list of specific doctrines that you hold to. Like they never said anything like if you aren't completely dunked when you're baptized, that's a big problem. Or they didn't say anything like uh, if you you have to be a Calvinist, you have to be an Arminian, or mm -hmm. you have to believe that women. My dad still doesn't believe that women should preach, but he never said if you believe that women are allowed to preach, then you're not a Christian. He never said stuff like that. So there were a variety. Charitable. Yeah, there were, you know, so, so a variety of positions that could be held to, but I, mm -hmm. coming to hell, um, it did, it was one of those things that you knew the church and the school that I went to, I went to an evangelical school. So the church and the school, I knew what their position was. Their position was eternal torment. And but they didn't actually say that phrase very much or, you know, what mm -hmm. what they do is, you know, you get taught that idea a few times, maybe two or three times. And then in the majority of the times where they talk about it, they say, well, we know what happens to those who are lost or, you know, we <clears> have <throat> to we have to tell these people this uh, evangelical presentation soon or, or else they'll be in the other place forever. You know, those kinds of euphemisms where you mm -hmm. go, OK, I mean. It sounds like it could be any of the three positions, uh, universalism, annihilationism, or eternal torment officially, but we yeah. all know that they're actually talking about eternal torment. Yeah. I'm really but, curious, uh, um, you know, the cultural dynamic growing up as an evangelical in America, especially in the past, you know, what's, let's say, 50 years or so since the beginning of when, when evangelicals really started getting involved in politics, um, which was post- post-Civil Rights Act, um, you had the Falwells, et cetera, uh, getting involved. And then you had the moral majority. Um, and there was always this narrative that, you know, the society is coming to take our children and um, American, the culture, well, it's, you get the mixed message. America is the greatest country and it's, and, it's a, and it's a Christian nation. Also, America is trying to take your children and drag them into hell. So you kind of like get this mixed mixed message but also, um, you do have this sense in which, like, fearing the other was a big part of of my tradition growing up, and a big part of a lot of evangelicals' tradition growing up. Um, being afraid of outsiders and trying to stick to your tribe, and that's not the experience of everybody. I don't want to create a monolith, but in my experience, um, you know, you could only look at politics a certain way, or or you're not Christian, you know, or you, you have to fear, um, fear what you believe, because like your beliefs will send you to hell, not, not your, not even your actions, but just like, if you have the wrong thoughts about God, that can damn you, which is, is really scary, because then like, you have to always question yourself, am I thinking the right thoughts about God, and that was really difficult to grapple with, and I think a lot of people do grapple with that, even outside the evangelical tradition, I'm sure across the board, um, you know, in the modern times, we we are very propositional about our faith, and we try to make have uh, systematic theologies and 
set up doctrines in such a way that it, everything has to be clear and concise and there's clear who those are the insiders the insiders and the outsiders are clear and i was wondering, curious like in growing up in bolivia did you have that experience with evangelicalism contra the the culture like did that is that dynamic there yeah, I mean, it's different from in the U.S., but here, uh, like in a lot of Latin American countries, Catholicism has a long history, right? And so here it's uh, oftentimes presented as evangelical versus Catholic. And Catholic means uh, idol worship because of the icons and, and statues and stuff like that. Catholic means saved by works. They all believe in saved by works is how it's presented oftentimes in evangelical churches. And um, and in syncretism, and, and I, you know, there is actually a good bit of... Um, syncretism in a lot of catholic churches here some probably fine and good and some probably <laughs> not great but the you know that happens in a lot of countries where the, the the major expression of religion gets huge where a number of people are basically nominally a part of that um you know whatever shinto in japan for a long time or um uh, russian orthodox and russian and stuff like that and so and, and Bolivia was definitely evangelical versus Catholic. There wasn't so much um, evangelical versus uh, the plans of the government, at least when I was growing up, I didn't hear that very much. But now it, there is a bit more of that just because of how, you know, how the government's been doing a number of things that, um, to, in some cases, really to try to restrict uh, what churches can do and stuff like that. And so there has been a bit more of that recently. Some stuff that I, there, it is interesting how it's different. Evangelicalism here is very obviously influenced by missionaries from the United States and other countries. But even so, like during like the pandemic and stuff, there was never a, evangelicals are anti-mask or anything like that there was never that in Bolivia like it was always like yeah you know we'll use a mask sometimes and stuff like everybody I don't know there wasn't a, so, it wasn't party lines with masks and stuff so in those cases uh you didn't see it play out the same way as in the U.S. and at least I didn't that's fascinating so the evangelicals in Christians don't align with themselves one way or the other politically in Bolivia the, I mean in general, they would be, you know, what you would think of as conservative in the U.S., but the, the idea of masks and stuff wasn't thought of as a conservative thing here. It was yeah. thought of as a, let's get through this thing together kind of thing. Um, um, I mean, I, I can't say caught on, like, completely consistently, but I just didn't hear anything about this group is anti-mask and this group is mm -hmm. pro-mask. I didn't hear yeah. any of that in Bolivia. Yeah, uh -huh. it is fascinating how when it comes to masks and vaccines, it's, it's suddenly all about like my bodily autonomy, you know, <laughs> when it comes to conservatives. Well, yeah. And Bolivia too, that was the interesting thing is that, so we down here didn't get any of the vaccines that they have in the U S except for Johnson and Johnson, because Biden sent the Johnson and Johnson down here because people in the U S didn't want it after a while because of the blood clot thing with the pregnant. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's actually what I ended up getting. So, cause they were getting uh, Chinese and Russian vaccines here for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that and Bolivia does have, it's, it does have better relations with China and Russia than with the U S Wow. But but the U.S. wasn't accepting those vaccines as a viable option. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do? I want to go to the U.S. for a while to to work on this documentary, Love Unrelenting, that I made well over. And then I heard, oh, in this town, this kind of small town that I was filming in at the time, they have a bunch of Johnson & Johnson, like loads of it, because Biden sent down because nobody's wanting it. And I said, <laughs> oh, OK, well, I'll get that because they do accept that in the U.S. So I finally got that. But it, even in those cases, I never heard anything about 
if you get this vaccine, you're part of this party, or if you don't get a vaccine, you're, um, I don't know, freedom fighter or something. I never heard any of that kind of yeah. stuff that you might hear in the U.S. Very, there's suddenly like um, Christians went from like, you know, pretty centrist, moderate conservatives to like hardcore libertarians um, and even neo-fascists, unfortunately, in some mm -hmm. cases. But anyway, I digress. Um, what's fascinating to me, too, is in Latin America, I'd love to visit Latin America. I've been to Cuba. I haven't been to anywhere else. Oh, nice. um, yeah, that was actually really cool. I got to go um, when I was in college. We spent two weeks there studying their special education system. It was mm. really neat. It was a class. But anyway, a lot of doctors from Cuba come here because there's a good relation between Bolivia and Cuba. Too, well, because they have great education. Okay, yeah. I mean, you've been there. I haven't. I heard that they have great education in some yeah some areas areas I like mean, doctors. Like their public education for kids is very old fashioned, where they don't have in America, or at least in the Northeast, because I grew up in Massachusetts. We're like the cutting edge for medicine and education. Like all special education started in America in the forties um, with the cerebral palsy schools in up in up in the Northeast New England, and that spread over the country like that format. Plus, we have like, you know, Mass General Hospital and mm -hmm. UMass Boston and all those like, you know, anyway, um, what was I saying? Yeah, in up in, in the Northeast, at least, the big and cutting edge is talking about inclusion, like getting getting um, kids with special needs embedded into the classroom more and, and with their peers more as much as possible. and in the least restrictive environment that's kind of the concept but when i went to cuba it was actually all separate schools so school for the blind school for autism school for the deaf etc yeah it's very interesting they don't have an inclusion model but it's it, that makes sense i mean they had the revolution in the 50s and that's how the schools were in the 50s mm -hmm. in america too but anyway that's some tangent <laughs> what was i saying oh I'm, my my curiosity is like in latin america especially with catholicism you kind of have this syncretism with um native american spirituality right mm -hmm. yeah there's a what lot does that of look like um, yeah it sort of depends on where you I'm are you a little bit oh sorry yeah i'm sorry if the internet drops out but the, as, as far as the combinations of different religious ideas go it sort of depends on where you are in the country because there's a lot of different native groups and so up in the highlands in La Paz, the capital, oh, sorry, not there. There's two capitals sort of in Bolivia, the economic capital, they call it. It's one of the biggest cities of La Paz is the, um, that's, they do like, they sacrifice llamas and they, uh, coca, coca leaves are legal in Bolivia. It's not a, there's no issue with it. And they, um, you know, will put coca leaves and, and stuff like that around. And so that can, you know, if you see that and you see a llama getting a, throat slit and stuff you can go whoa this looks this is looking kind of creepy a heart beating on a plate i've seen you know a heart beating because when you take the heart right out of the animal it's still beating on a plate and stuff like that and you can go whoa this stuff can look kind of creepy but there's also there some of the things are are more aesthetic than not as far as uh the catholic missionaries back in the day they intentionally um wanted to relate their ideas to the people who are already here and so one of the famous examples of what you could call syncretism, although it really seems to me just sort of an aesthetic, aesthetic adaptation, 
is that so there was a big mountain in Bolivia that a lot of people you could say either I don't know if they, they worshipped it or they honored it or if they thought it was a god or I don't know exactly but they anyway there's a big mountain that was very important and so when they did drawings or paintings of the Virgin Mary they made her dress flow out down uh like a mountain so her head was very small and the dress would flow out uh to be she would look almost triangular in the way that she was painted and they did that on purpose to try to say hey let's you know maybe they could say something like the mountain was a pre-symbol pointing to her or whatever or she's the one that we should pay attention to now or whatever I don't know how they exactly pointed it out pre-incarnate Mary in some weird (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but there's a lot of paintings. Yeah, there's a lot of paintings and even statues that point to that kind of example, right? But um, yeah, there's a lot of mixing and matching going on. And some of it, like I said, is probably not that But You know, that happens in every country to a certain extent. The funny thing is that from what I've heard in evangelical circles, generally, if, they, if the evangelical missionary who's talking about it likes the uh, mixing that has gone on then they call it adaptation they say it's adapting the gospel and then if they don't like it they call it syncretism so really it sort of depends who you're talking to but i yeah i mean there's some stuff that uh there's a certain mine in a town called potosi where they literally go in there's a statue of the devil and they give uh like uh objects to the statue of the devil and if you don't do that then they say oh you're gonna have a bad time in the mines like stuff, rocks could fall on you and all this kind of stuff and then you go well that that to me seems <laughs> like a bad idea to give sacrifices directly to the devil obviously <laughs> but um that's pretty pagan <laughs> and, and they they put cigars cigarettes they put cigarettes in his mouth and that kind of stuff but um there's you know there's all kinds of different traditions going on so so, so you have to look at them one by one basically i would say yeah that's really fascinating. You know, in a way, you could look at what we could categorize as this form of evangelicalism that's particularly white evangelical, particularly nationalistic. In a way, it's its own form of either adaptation or syncretism, which is kind of ironic because they tend to be the missionaries that go out around the world spreading the gospel of America. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, I, I think I think there's really well-intentioned um evangelicals out there who are who are missionaries um amongst but there are some who kind of you know might abuse it in some way shape or form which has kind of been the sad story of latin america since um 1492 right yeah no and there's definitely um in some cases i've seen some groups can be so desperate for missionaries that they sort of let people come and teach in let's say some missionary school or something that you wouldn't actually let teach in a school in the U.S. and there have been yeah different times where either the person is just really not prepared or even ends up doing things that aren't good yeah or I'm sure what happens often too especially in poorer communities is um, the word of faith or prosperity gospel kind of folks come in and preach prosperity like you see america well you want to be like that you know then you got to follow jesus and he's going to make you rich like us and that's that in that way some some people kind of get um gypped and ripped off or frauded in that sense because then they take their money and run it's really messed up 
I, I'm sure that does happen. So I haven't seen that here. A lot of the prosperity gospel type people that I've seen around here that are missionaries are from Brazil, but I imagine it oh, came, really? came to Brazil. I imagine it came over to Brazil from the U.S., I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. So, yeah, I'm getting coming back more into your story. What what was your journey to universalism? How did that look like? Um, I, it's not very original. Probably it's going to be the same as a lot of people. But basically it was, you know, I grew up believing in eternal torment. And then you start to read C.S. Lewis and people like him who say, well, uh, it, you know, in The Great Divorce mainly, although he implies it in some other places too, that this is a free will choice that people make and they either become solidified in that choice or they just continue to choose it even after death. So that's what hell is, is you choosing to go against God and you just continue to choose to go against God. You continue to isolate yourself from God and your life becomes bleaker and bleaker, but you become more and more self-enclosed and, and, you know, trapped in your own, a trap of your own making basically. But that only made sense to me if um, there was some form of postmortem repentance. So I didn't really believe in that because I had no, no hint of that growing up in any kind of evangelicalism that I had where you had any kind of opportunity after your physical body dies, right? And so I said, well, maybe for some reason your body, you know, for some reason your character solidifies when you die. But for some reason, I'm not sure why. Um, but that's, it's got to be something like that. But eventually, after reading a number of, you know, articles and, and people that present the idea of annihilationism or conditional immortality, it's called, I became convinced of that. So I became convinced of that probably around when I was like 20 until I was like 26, something like that. And, you know, there was Edward Fudge and um, I'm forgetting his name right now, but he's a very famous Anglican who wrote a book in the eighties where it was a debate between him and a more liberal guy. Do you know who I'm talking about? He's a, he's one of the big guys in conditionalism. Was it, was it Stott? Yeah. John Stott. That's exactly Stott? it. John Stott. John Stott, yeah. So, uh, so him, he was another one. Um, a, a lot of people, a lot of different conditionalist thinkers, uh, John Stackhouse and guys like that. And so I was more recently that, Chris Dates. Chris Date as well. Uh, I mean, I was reading the book, yeah, that he edited, uh, that had pieces from Clark Pinnock and and other people. And um, so Sprinkle, yeah, I was I think too. Sprinkle, yeah, too. Eventually, even though the main book that he wrote on hell is is not that right, erasing hell that he wrote with Francis Chan, but he did eventually become an annihilation. So his blog posts about that. So I did read those, and so for a long time, yeah, I believed in uh, annihilationism for a number of years, and because you know, there's verses that talk about death, destruction, darkness, um, uh, fire, and what does fire do? And when the way we use fire in our everyday lives, fire does. Uh, burn stuff up and and not leave much behind and so i thought well all these things seem to go along with the idea that some people will be they'll just be gone eventually they'll suffer for a while and then they'll be gone but i would still worry about but why would god set things up that way where we only have you know a number of years out of the, this everlasting time frame that he has where we have what like 80 years if we're if we're having a good a good life right maybe like 60 for a lot of people or less but like 80 years to completely confirm our choices and then once we lose uh our physical bodies we don't have any choices anymore and he's not going to give us anymore and and why would this be so that was a question that bothered me but i really didn't see many verses in the bible that pointed to 
post-mortem repentance. So when I would think about hell, I would think about the verses that are normally applied to hell, fire, darkness, destruction, uh, death. And so I would think, well, you know, that's that. But then, you know, there, well, there are a number of different essays and things, but one of the great ones I think is by Robin Perry in the second edition of Four Views on Hell, which is edited by Preston Sprinkle, who you just talked about. And in that book, there's four presentations. One is the traditional view, what's called the traditional view, which is eternal torment. One is uh, a view by Jerry Walls that's sort of uh, in between where pe some people can. Uh, it's basically a purgatory, but also a post more repentance, but a lot of people will still suffer eternally. So his is sort of middle ground. But then there's a, a pretty typical annihilationist or conditional immortality view by John Stackhouse. And then there's an, a universalist essay by Robin Perry. And when I read that and compared it to the other essays, I thought, well, this is at least as good a defense of universalism as the Stackhouse's. At the time, I believed in the annihilation position. So I thought, well, at least this is at least as good as a presentation as the annihilationist position. So that's great. And what I, what I noticed more in in that presentation was that because this is the way he put it together too is that it's not so much you're just basing on the hell versus like hell okay so versus about fire versus about death versus about destruction it's not just that there are a lot of other verses that you have to bring into the mix versus about saving everyone because there are a lot of verses that you know some people call the all verses where it talks about how uh, you know, all people will be saved as an Adam all dies and Christ all will be made alive. And, you know, um, justification comes to all people through Christ. And even verses about the world, how Jesus is the savior of the world or is the savior of mankind. And those kinds of broader statements that really do sound like they're uh, meant to apply to everybody. Uh, the savior of all people, but especially those who believe and those kinds of phrases where you go, how do you how do you read this, you know, especially those who believe? I mean, that that phraseology sounds weird in any of the three positions, I think, but it makes the most sense in universalism. The savior of all people, especially those who believe. But the, you know, how could he be the savior of all people if some people are tortured forever or some people are uh, eventually annihilated? But anyway, so I thought, okay, yeah, we got to put, we have to bring in more verses into the whole the, the wider theology than just the verses that have to do very directly with what we would consider hell which in, in some cases a lot of people would argue since there's four different words spread throughout the bible they're not even talking about the same thing in some cases but then it was david bentley hart's book that also be saved and i was also reading a book by richard Rohr um, at the same time which was helping me out a little bit too but it was mainly david bentley hart's book that also be saved that that made me say okay this is actually the best position this is actually the one that makes the most sense not only the love of god and the destiny of people but of all the different verses fitting together and of just how uh, all the various aspects of the character of god and his plans for the world and what people were created for uh and how you know how free will works although that that one i probably wouldn't agree with him completely but he does lay out a good case for why free will shouldn't be thought of in the same way that a lot of people who defend hell do think of it and so that book was the one that eventually convinced me completely <laughs> yeah wow yeah i think that's you know ever since 2019 when that book came out that probably was like it kind of ruffled a lot of feathers and you know it's funny i think a lot of 
critics actually um, gave him more um, attention because they saw it as a threat and because they saw it as a threat it it, um it almost drew more attention to his to his arguments and when they listened to his their rebuttals they'd be like that rebuttal's not really that great (laughs) and then he'd go back and forth and back and forth between these people and um also the way he (laughs) the way he uses polemic um is very it's really comical (laughs) and jarring i remember actually i think it may have been that may have been like my first um introduction actually to this concept that you can be both a biblically minded christian because i think the only the only time i'd ever heard of universalism was only in the context of like some like really progressive strain of christianity but then you got have this guy who's orthodox um and you know of course a lot of orthodox Eastern Orthodox people don't agree with him and probably don't like him and that's fine whatever I don't think he cares you know (laughs) that's what's (laughs) kind of funny about it he doesn't um, have a pity party about that but I remember first listening to one of his um one of his lectures and being really um, challenged and reacting in such a way like and at the time I think I was kind of I grew up in more of an Arminian faith, but but Calvinism over the the, the year prior was making more sense to me, um, like uh, propositionally and mentally, intellectually. So at the time, I was like, David, you're completely wrong. Like, don't you understand? Like, God decides who he wants to save and who he doesn't want to save. It's just, it's that simple. But in a way, it was like this, he made me, what it made me realize was, there's this kind of like um, spiritual deformation that occurs when you really go down that road, when you really commit to the idea that God kind of in this haphazard way um, or according to his providence in, in some way, and, that, and that's supposed to be good. Um, and I'm supposed to accept it as good that God kind of just chooses one person and but doesn't choose another. Like, And um, that really disrupted me, but I still rejected it from that point. But then later on and this was like the end of 2020 going into 2021 and i remember like that was the input that was like uh this breaking point where the pandemic was really breaking me i had covid my family got covid i had we had just had an election year and i was just like beat mentally spiritually beat after that year of pandemic and political craziness and then I was like, you know what, maybe I got to give him a listen again, because I'm tired and and my tradition's making me tired and I can't. And so I gave him another listen and all of a sudden it like it something kind of switched in me. I'm like, what if I just like pretend in my mind that I believe this, that I believe that all God is actually interested in, in saving people. And I kind of like did this ex- thought experiment where I kind of like pretended my mind and lived in such a way and thought in such a way and looked at other people in such a way that God is interested in saving them too. And that, um, it was, it, it had practical implications where like a lot of anxiety that I was experiencing was going away. And, and I was like, what, what is up with that? Why do I, I feel more positive about life and experience and, and even in the midst of all this trauma and, um, pandemic and whatnot i i feel this weird kind of peace but but then i 
after that two weeks went by, I'm like, you know what? It can't be true. It's too good to be true. And and several months went by, and then I got back into I got back into like the study of it, and it really and coming across your videos, uh, your un, love unrelenting videos, along with many others. I mean, Robin Perry was really helpful too because um, I didn't like David Bentley Hart's crassness like and he even admits that he has doesn't have a pastoral bone in his body like he doesn't care about how people feel he doesn't care about i think he he kind of can seem not to care really about the church and about like what are they, but he does in a sense but um i think he yeah he doesn't have that pastoral heart to him whereas robin perry is more just sweet and kind and um really convincing just in the way that he just dialogues in such a loving manner and charitable manner <clears throat> so yeah i think that was a turning point for a lot of people and it's interesting that it's like right at this crossroads that we're at in um in the world like with the pandemic but also politically that we're at a crossroads you know there's a lot of division in our in our country at least i don't know i'm sure there's quite a bit of division in the in down south america as well but um but yeah it's just like it's a really inter it's a really interesting time and so tell me more about um you know what made you get into video directing and making yeah well for i did want to say as far as the practical side that you said when you were experiencing like those two weeks where you're try kind of trying it out that other book that i was reading at the same time as it also be saved around the same time the cosmic christ by richard Rohr, that had more of that in it where it said you know it can change how you look at people yeah. This. He, I mean, he doesn't say, I don't remember him saying universalism specifically, but Richard Rohr's theology is generally universalist. It is, yeah. And and he, it, it can change how you live. It can change how you interact with people. Practical implications. And how you, how you actually, uh, uh, you know, go about your day. And I was actually feeling that at the time. I was feeling, I would, I would sometimes almost cry. I don't cry that often. And these days when I do cry, it is usually, if it's a movie that has where I'm crying out of out of the the goodness in the scene usually I don't yeah. usually cry when like a when a character dies or something I haven't done that in a while but I do cry when a character sacrifices himself for another character mm. or or something along those lines it's um, beautiful where where yeah I cry for love basically and I would notice myself I'd be writing and I was living in Japan at the time I'd be riding my bike to school and I'd be thinking uh everybody I see everybody I see is gonna be okay one day and they'll they'll even maybe my universalism is even a little too <laughs> i don't know maybe i i'm making some things up but i think everybody will be my friend someday explicitly mm -hmm. my friend that i that i personally know them i personally have talked to them wow. i know that that's billions of people but when you have eternity on your side you can talk to billions of people and remember them i know that we can't do that right now and trans because... and also we'll be transfigured right we'll we'll have new bodies and new minds and new and renewed spirits and and resurrected will be resurrected and, and new capabilities and possibilities it's kind of fascinating to think about like what is what is the new creation actually like mm -hmm. it's it's like this but but way more but way more real way more yeah, yeah vibrant I, and and it does make you know David Lee Hart brought up that that thought like how much how many are we willing to lose and still be in and still be able to experience paradise you know um how many 
And are we just going to be able to accept it and be like, yeah, God, that was the right choice on your behalf that my, my dad or my brother who rejected God is burning forever. Like that you're good, God. I want to worship you forever. You know, like (laughs) it starts to, it starts to sound ludicrous. Well, he has that part about Judas, right. In his book where he credited the idea to somebody else. I can't remember, but the way he explains it is pretty good where if God had set things up before the creation of the world, I know that when you're talking about God before creating things, they're like, it's not temporal. You know, you have to talk about a succession of ideas. Outside of, outside of, within the realm of eternity is is not on a timeline, but it's outside of the created time. Yeah. But anyway, so God's looking, making his plan, right? And he says, okay, so I, Let's just say that only one person, let's just say only Judas is the one that will be suffering forever. Only Judas. Uh, Then that makes Judas in a very strange way, a Christ figure. That Judas, before the creation of the world, God said, he will be the one that I will sacrifice. He will be the one who will suffer forever for the sake of the world. And he'll be the one that just to make the balance of my creation work in the right way, I'll have to make this guy who's going to betray Jesus. He's going to suffer forever and everybody else will be happy. And this guy, even though he's not making the sacrifice willingly, he is the one who it's because of him suffering forever that we can be happy forever. And I would say if that's the kind of calculation that has to go into it, God should have said, uh, never mind, I'm not going to make the world. Actually, (laughs) if that's the sacrifice that has to be made where somebody made by God and loved by God or at least supposedly loved by God, is going to have to suffer forever, then it would be better uh, not to create the world. And most people who believe in Trinitarian theology would actually say that God didn't have to create the world because there was already the community of the Trinity. And so it's not in a lot of people's theology, it's not that God had to make people. And so if God didn't have to make people, I, it seems strange that he would decide to make people who would end up suffering forever. I actually have a great quote that I was listening to David Bentley Hart. Um, he was actually on the Grace Saves All podcast. And I wonder if I saved that quote because it was so good. I need to find it. Oh, where was he it? He has a lot it, of great quotes. No, it was like something he said and it hit me so hard. Um, but I need to find it and I will. I know it's in here. <laughs> it's in my notes somewhere. Yeah, well, it was so be, good. Before anyway, I even read the um, That All Shall Be Saved, years before I'd read uh, The Doors of the Sea, and it was one of my favorite books. It was my top five theology books. I had no idea he was a universalist at the time. Uh-huh. And um, that one has some really good quotes about just, you read them and you think this is this is what it means to have a, a real Christian view, which is evil is evil. <laughs> Kids... Yeah being killed by somebody or being killed by some tsunami the tsunami is what the book that's is not god on. it's evil is evil we don't have to go about saying oh well these are the plan and i know he goes against calvinists an awful lot but there are other oh, yeah. people who believe in some way where god uh where god wanted evil basically and we don't have to do that. And actually, we shouldn't do that. And like, uh, I'd really like Gregory Boyd, too, who's pretty different from um, David Bentley Hart in a number of ways. But Gregory Boyd likes to quite quote that um, phrase that Jesus said, uh, an enemy has done this, where he's talking about the sowing of the the we- the weeds among the crops, basically, where they say, how did this happen? Well, an enemy has done this. So it's not 
uh, something that is springing from the the what God desires. It's you know when evil things happen, evil is evil, and we can say that. We can just say no, that's that's not good. Uh huh. Yeah. Ah, oh, dang! I need to find that quote. It was so good. <laughs> it was just like I think it was something along the lines of, um, oh, this this is essentially what it was. Creation is not was not essential. It it was not essential um, for God to create creation. Um, oh, dang! It was something about um, it was just. It was just basically creation was a, just a natural outflow of of nature of God, is, is what I'm saying. Oh, it wasn't necessary, but it was essential because of his nature. It wasn't necessary that he creates, but it was essential because of his nature. I, he said it better, but that no, really, I know what you mean. Yeah. That really hit me. Like, um, um, yeah, he didn't have to create us but he did because of who he is, you know? And, and that's a, that's, a, that's probably one of the best arguments for universalism is the nature of God. And that's something that um, Andrew Haranich really harps on his new books coming out soon. Once loved, always loves. And I'm really excited to get that. I promised him I'd buy it. Cause we had a three, three hour interview with him. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. so then how, how did you get into videography and, and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I kind of skipped over that last time. But the, That's okay. the <laughs> yeah, the uh, I love movies since I was a little kid. But then I started to make them when I was probably in like third or fourth grade. We had at the time what was called a quick cam, which was it, it was like a little webcam, but it had a cable attached. It was like a ball, so I'd make mo little movies in my dad's office and edit them with PowerPoint, which is not how you're supposed to edit movies. But I, that's I was really small, so it, you know you would put the clips together through successive PowerPoint pages. So it was a very slow transition between the scenes, but eventually, um, I watched a very very cheaply done movie. It's called El Mariachi. It was made for seven thousand dollars in nineteen ninety two um, by a guy who went on to be a kind of famous director, Robert Rodriguez. He's made uh, episodes of The Mandalorian, which is a kind of big show now. But um, I mean, he's made a bunch of other stuff too. But that's just some of his more recent stuff. But anyway, the movie was only made for seven thousand dollars, and when I saw that. It wasn't like a masterpiece. It's a good movie, but it's not like a masterpiece. But I would watch it, and I would watch it with the commentary, too. I had it on DVD, and I thought, uh, you know, you can make stuff for cheap. That's cool. And you can tell these stories, and you don't have to use a lot of money, and you can use your friends. And so I, I would do that quite a bit. And so, you know, I just love movies. I, I would love to learn about the different angles and, and things like that. I didn't think I was going to get into documentaries that much, but when I did become convinced of universalism, I thought, you know, the, Kevin Miller had made Hellbound, uh, and that was, a good, that was a good documentary, but I didn't see much else besides that, and I didn't see Thomas Talbot in that. I didn't know that he had interviewed Talbot for it and hadn't used the interview at the time. I just thought, why don't people interview Thomas Talbot? That's crazy, because his book is really good, and I wanted to interview... Um, David Bentley Hart and Robert Perry as well. And so I thought, well, you know, the best way to do that would be to make a lengthy documentary that goes into uh, all kinds of aspects of Christian universalism. At first, I had thought I was just going to um, make it just about, it was just going to be called Love Unrelenting Christian Universalism in the 21st Century or something like that. But then I started to think, well, you know, let's let's present the other two major views of hell and not make it so much just about universalism today, but just about universalism generally. 
And interestingly, I, when I, that happened when I was living in Japan, so I looked up Universalist Church, and then there was one in Tokyo that wasn't too far from me. And I was like, well, that's interesting because there really aren't that many explicitly Universalist churches in the world. And to have one not too far from where I was in Japan, I thought was kind of funny. I didn't know at the time that Japan was one of the few places where the Universalist denomination in the 1800s had sent missionaries. And so I visited there. And then I just kept making the documentary from there. And I love I love doing it. The documentaries aren't the deepest and most creative side of filmmaking when I do them anyway. Because since I generally do them by myself, I sort of set up the camera on a tripod, try to make sure that the background is out of focus and it looks kind of fancy. And then I just ask people questions. And then I try to edit them in a way that looks kind of professional. But you can tell that I'm not spending a lot of money or I don't have a crew and stuff. But I think that the main, it's not exactly the production value of the YouTube channel that makes it popular, even though hopefully I'm doing an okay job on that. But it, I think it's really that people are looking for it. And there's not really that many other channels that focus on Christian universalism. There's David Artman's podcast. Uh, I guess your podcast, some. Although, I mean, I know you have a wide range of topics. I just, yeah, I just started too. Like, um, but yeah, I mean, you're, I think yours is pretty big. I, and so you're saying you started out your channel for this because while you were making your, your documentary? Yeah, I had started, I had thought of the documentary explicitly. And then I thought, I'm going to have so much extra stuff making this. I should put yeah. them out in little clips. And so the very first video I put out was, if I remember right, was with a, a pastor with the CUA, the Christian Universalist Association, who also lived in Tokyo. And I messed up with his mic placement. So I ended up, so a lot of it sounded like I put it on a fuzzy part of his sweater. So the mic sounded like shh, 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 the whole time. And so I only ended up using some clips of that in, in my YouTube channel generally, even though I, I like talking to him. And I, I kind of blew it on that one. But then I also had filmed at that Tokyo church. So those were the first couple of videos that I put up. And then I, while I was also, I was kind of sitting in Japan, I had to finish up the contract, my teaching contract, right? So I thought I have a lot of months before I end up actually going to the US and filming the majority of the interviews. So I said, I'm going to do an audiobook. And for some reason, this audiobook is one of the most popular videos on the channel. It's called 150 Reasons uh, for Believing in the Final Salvation of All Mankind, or something close to that. And it was by a universalist minister in the 1850s, I think it was, I don't know why it's very popular, but uh, the the book is, I mean, it's good. It's like a mid-level universalist work. I wouldn't say it's one of the best. Is it Hanson? It's not even Hanson. No, it's Manford, Erasmus Manford. I am doing really? Hanson. I am doing Hanson's now. His book is better. Hanson's is better. <laughs> That's, you know, I bet that might be shocking to a lot of people, but throughout American history of, of Protestantism, there's this handful of... Uh, christian universalists and and then even you have the universalist before they became unitarian universalists and got kind of got hijacked by progressive strains of christianity and more like modernistic thinking like you had the whole conspiracy i don't know if you're um there was a controversy in the early 1900s between and even even the late 1800s between the even the evangelicals there was a fundamentalist evangelical split and then there was also this mainline evangelical split between Protestants where the Protestants started taking on more liberal notions of how we understand scripture. So like a lot of like the big reason why evangelicals are very 
adamant about sola scriptura and um infallibility of scripture inerrancy is because they were reacting to uh more liberal theologians in the late 1800s and early 1900s who became more mainline and they were more modernist thinking thinkers who, who wanted to they didn't really even believe in the resurrection or um they thought it was kind of like a spiritual meaning and uh that kind of stuff so it makes sense it's interesting when you see these why certain denominations take certain positions it's often a reaction to it, and then the pendulum swings the other way and you know it's that's fascinating but anyway i digress um you were you were talking about oh i was mentioning how it's interesting in american history how you have um universalists all throughout american history and they actually had a, a big impact in some areas like hansen what was his first name john wesley interesting you can tell i talked to a pastor once a universalist pastor who's he's like you can tell when people converted in right and what people didn't because if their last name was blue who was a big name in the universalist denomination aiden blue aiden blue from he, massachusetts he was, kind of, he was kind of born into it right because his his great uncle or whatever was uh hosea blue but john wesley hansen you can kind of guess oh he he may not have been born into it right because he sounds like he was born methodist you know we can't i don't know if that's true but he sounds like, like it was john name. wesley <laughs> yeah i mean who's going to name their kid i mean his last name is just hansen so his full name is john wesley so that's kind of interesting but he has yeah a great book uh universalism the prevailing doctrine of the first 500 years of christian history yeah that's a very good book about how the history of universalism in the early church it was he he may exaggerate um how big it was he leans pretty hard on the doctrine of reserves the idea that people didn't want to explicitly preach universalism to the crowd but they would hold it more privately or amongst their theologian friends but he does make a pretty good case that universalism was pretty big during the first 500 years mm -hmm. of the church and then it, it went out of style for a long time and then it kind of picked up again yeah there's definitely evidence for it i mean especially when you look at the cappadocians in the fourth century right or or is it fifth century um kind of before sure august yeah. augustine and yeah. then you know i often hear people quote um augustine when i don't know which um where he was writing it but he wrote that there was a this there was many who believe who didn't believe in the eternal torments of or uh, ne never-ending everlasting torments there were many um soft-hearted people who believed didn't believe in everlasting torments which is fascinating that he would say that if if the majority position was eternal conscious torment but i mean he obviously was he was also reacting he was probably reacting to some universalists who were kind of going in a gnostic direction and that's probably why he went pe pendulum swung in the other direction because supposedly he augustine was may have been a universalist early on before he kind of picked up yeah i've heard that too that he he became a christian he became a universalist and then he uh, got rid of that idea and sort of people say that he went back to what he sort of had originally believed um which what he had held to before was this eternal pre-existence of evil and good before he had mm. become a christian and they marcionism right some people I think it was Manichaeism. Oh, Manichaeism. Manichaeism. Yeah, it is a it yeah. is a hard I yeah, yeah. I, no, Marcionism was the was the one that they reject the old testament. They don't believe the old testament God is the true God. 
Yeah, they think so. It's a, not even that they reject it. What people actually say about Marcionism is that uh, it's almost a form of fundamentalism because they don't reject the Old Testament. They take it very literally, and then exactly. they say that God sounds really bad. <laughs> Which is so, what a lot of you know. What I find is that a lot of people who end up being, especially in the New Atheist strain, they're actually fundamentalists because they read they read the, the scriptures very rigidly. Um, and very flat and without nuance or understanding context, which is kind of ironic that they usually are reacting against fundamentalists, but they're fundamental. We using the same fundamentalist framework at the same time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's yeah, that's the main thing they usually go after is evangelical forms of Christianity. The uh, but speaking of reactions too, it's interesting that the tulip of Calvinism came about as a reaction to what the Arminians had published. And then they said, hey, we got to come up with a few points yeah. to lay this out. And so the five points of Calvinism are obviously much more famous than the five points of Arminianism. But yeah. those five points came out as a reaction to what the Arminians had published. So, yeah, a lot yeah. of stuff gets famous when they're reacting to something. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're killing um, your when you're executing your opponents like Calvin did. People don't realize that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think he directly executed him, but he definitely supported the execution yeah. of Servetus. Yeah, they they yeah. say he he they say they used green wood even to burn him longer on purpose. I don't know how well documented that is, but yeah, it took him a long time to die. It was bad. And that that's one thing that is also I think a a um, good um, not not it talks about it speaks to the practical implications of universalism you don't have any universalists out there in history burning people at stakes but you have you have traditionalists or infernalists as D david bentley hart says who did burn people at stakes because they believed that's what god was going to do to them anyway or yeah. they went to war with people because they believed they had to kill them because god's going to it would actually be better if they killed them than them to face the judgment if they keep prolonging their sinful ways or something like that it's really messed up when you think about it <laughs> yeah although people can come up with all kinds of excuses at the same time i don't want to exaggerate too much oh, you know sure. there were universalists in the 1800s part of the universalist denomination who were slave owners in the south oh yeah and because that that was something that sort of divided that church for a while they didn't have a specific stance on it. you would think if you were universalist you would say all people are equal, equal. It, yeah. no matter what race no matter what or ethnicity color whatever background gender and and you know a number of them did do that they were one of the first denominations that had women uh being ordained and those kinds of things but there were also yeah a number of slave owners who would even sort of justify it by going like this is how it's supposed to be at this time and in the future we'll all be together and it'll be better but right <laughs> now we're, we're slave owners and that was something that had divided that church for a long time wow. they didn't want to come down too hard on it like a lot of churches didn't want to at the time because they thought if we if we release a specific statement on this the, the denominational split in half like the methodists are doing now in the u.s over gay marriage right oh, the United yeah methodist they church. are that's fascinating yeah. yeah i know all the methodist churches in massachusetts are, are pretty progressive liberal leaning i yeah. i don't i'm hard pressed to find any and if if they're not progressive they're they're usually dying which is unfortunate because mm -hmm. i really do love methodists i think i think there's a lot of great um things that came from john wesley mostly that he just focused so much on love he was um, so love-centered but yeah, yeah so you got into making these videos and then how how'd you go about reaching out to these people you just did it yeah generally i just looked them up online and i searched for a while for their email address every once in a while you got to try to talk to somebody that knows them or you have to sort of 
maybe contact a university and be like, hey, can you give me this email of this professor or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, you can usually find a certain, you can either find a Facebook thing or an, e or an email or a, some other contact info for a lot of people. There are some people who I've tried to get and I could just never, never get them. But uh, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, people are up for it. And the good thing too, I mean, the good thing for me, maybe not the good thing generally, the good thing for me is that some people that I've talked to and had a really interesting time talking with them, I think part of the reason they accepted it is because they're just not interviewed a lot on a topic that they actually do know a lot about. And so they, they accept you, they accept the invitation to speak with you fairly quickly because it's not, they're not super busy with doing a lot of interviews. Right. Yeah. And so it works out well for me because I did want to talk to them about this. Uh, and so that's good. But I mean, somebody who I wanted to talk to a lot is Ilaria Ramelli, who wrote a really yeah. big book, but from what I hear, she's just, generally not doing interviews these days she's not in great health and so it yeah. didn't work out for that but there's a you know i i'm happy with an awful lot of people that i've been able to talk to and it's been great yeah i've actually been pleasantly surprised that i started this podcast in november and since then i've i've gotten people like roger zach keith giles um and my most surprising one was shane claiborne recently which I was super shocked that they even got back to me, but he's actually not not as busy as you think. He's more available, and he plus he has administrative assistants that help out with the contacts and whatnot. So it's super cool. Like a lot of these people, they're willing to talk, and also they have books to sell too, so it helps with publicity. So that's true. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> I mean, true. it's really cool. And then even you, I mean, yeah, sure, you're not like super famous, but. In this corner of the internet, I think you're pretty well known, especially because of the impact that your videos and video series have had on people grappling with this question of hell and heaven and eschatology and understanding like how how am I supposed to what if I guess the question is like what does faithfulness look like? What does Christian faithfulness look like at its very core? And mm -hmm. I think someone that's really helped me a lot is Brad Jerzak, like you know, look at the Nicene Creed. That's the foundation of faith for the Orthodox Church, which is really probably the oldest church tradition um, that that looks like, you know, for the first 300 years, Christianity was kind of in chaos. It's kind of all over the place. And they're dealing with all sorts of different variations. And but then when the ecumenical councils got together, they're like, well, what should a Christian believe? Well, Nicene Creed is pretty dang pretty dang good and there's nothing in there about hell so so yeah. i think that's really helpful for people to hear that a lot of the concepts of hell that we have are later developments especially in medieval times um but when you look at it it's just i believe in um the that jesus is coming back to judge the world the living and the dead and i look forward to the life of the world to come yeah. which there's a lot of there for our interpretation yeah, it's interesting, too, how a lot of people who haven't heard these kinds of ideas before will automatically say, no, but judgment is coming. And then you'll be like, yeah, universalists generally do believe in judgment. It's just what the nature of judgment is. They believe in a different kind of judgment. And so that that's no problem for a universalist to say, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the judge, the judgment will happen to the living and the dead. And um, it will all eventually end up uh, with everyone being saved. But that doesn't mean that there isn't judgment. What's that verse in Hebrews that a lot of people throw out against universalism. Oh, um, uh, it's appointed every, to man to die once. Yeah. Is that, yeah. And yep. then comes the judgment. And then comes the judgment. Yeah. Yeah. And the universalist says, sure. 
Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like that that meme with the big thumbs up. Like there's a yeah. there's a crowd of people talking and someone says something. Here's the thumbs up. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yes, we agree. Yeah. Um no problem and with judgment, just the nature of judgment. What's fascinating is some of the most hardcore universalists in church history were very tough on sin. Mm-hmm. Like Gregory of Nyssa and and all the Cappadocian fathers, they were had no problem. And they were accepted by the the church, the wider church at the time. Um, even Gregory of Nyssa. I think some one of the most compelling people is Gregory of Nyssa. It always comes to my mm-hmm. mind because what's really fascinating, David Bentley Hart pointed this out. He is the first, probably one of the first voices in the ancient world to speak out against slavery, which is really fascinating because like here it is in the fourth century where within the Roman empire where basically I didn't realize this, but basically like 80% of the population is a slave in some sort of form of indentured servitude. Mm -hmm. Even Jesus may have been a slave all. And that's, that could explain why he didn't start his ministry up until 30. Cause then they they usually get a release around 30 years old, which really, I mean, if Jesus was a slave, how badass is that? (laughs) Sorry. I have to say that God incarnate taking on flesh. And he doesn't come as a ruler, king, or uh, a war hero, but as a slave. Like, And it literally does say in Philippians that he even lowered himself even to becoming a servant or a slave. Mm-hmm. And some you can interpret that. But when you look at, yeah, Gregory Venisa was like one of the first voices in the ancient world to speak out against slavery and had, speaking out against Christians who owned slaves and, and, and how society owned slaves. It was really fascinating. And that's really compelling because you see him and he he believed in the probably the most the highest degree of universal reconciliation where he he believed even the fallen angels who were created by god and even satan himself will have his heart turned towards god which is really fascinating yeah i definitely think being anti-slavery is the most consistent uh universalist theology to hold sure. of course that's not at all controversial these days <laughs> to be no, anti-slavery not. but yeah it definitely makes sense uh in a general overarching universalist theology that uh you should be against any kind of um any kind of idea that puts some people as being worth less than other people basically yeah yeah it's very it is very interesting it begs a lot of questions about like you know how do we interpret democracy too like is is democracy even is that even like really truly a christian ideal it not isn't necessarily is do societies have to be theonomous or theocratic like not necessarily and you know but but there is embedded within society and people recognize these judeo-christian values that seem to permeate society but then you look at you look at uh places like japan where they haven't really Christianity hasn't really picked up there because, and Andrew Hronick points this out, Christianity really hasn't picked up there that much because they really revere the dead and their ancestors and the thought of their ancestors burning in a um, forever in a subterranean torture chamber um, is unthinkable. So they reject Christianity in a lot of ways. Yeah, I imagine that is part of the reason, yeah. There, yeah, there's a, probably a number of reasons. One of them is that Japan was shut off for a long time from the outside world, right? And so generally, they didn't want to take 
all these ideas, but then they did eventually say, hey, let's take what's good from the West. So they had considered good at the time. And they said, hey, let's, you know, take a lot of business ideas. It took capitalism. And, <laughs> yeah. Japan, ran with Japan. it. Even though not, yeah. I mean, comparatively, like their, um, uh, what do you call it? Their like national insurance, case. their national insurance and stuff like that is different from the U.S., right? Um, going to the dentist in the U.S., man, it's much more expensive than Japan. I'll just say really? that. Oh man, I hate the dentist. I went to the dentist once in the U.S. and I'm never gonna go again. Well, we uh, have to we have to pay we have to buy dental insurance through through our work. Yeah, it's another I have to insurance. Get... It's not included in health insurance. Like what? What are we even paying for with health insurance? <laughs> yeah, well, the health insurance in Japan does include it, but one time I forgot my health insurance card, and the price was still not that bad without it. And wow. then they re they refunded me when I came up with the card later, and so I was like, this is still so much cheaper than it was in the U.S. But anyway, that, you know, that's a different thing, <laughs> but that, uh, yeah, so they haven't, you know, copied Japan's really its own thing in a lot of ways. It's really interesting because it's sort of what you would call progressive in some ways, but then they're still bigger than a lot of other countries when it comes to nuclear power, right? They're, I mean, they, they made Godzilla and all that stuff yeah. that has the history of nuclear power. And I think they've cut it down a good bit more recently. But in that way, you might be like, hey, they're not like Europe, maybe. And then also the amount of whales they killed, <laughs> they still kill compared to <laughs> a lot of other countries is like, whoa, <laughs> like um, it's compared to, you know, so you'd be like, is Japan progressive or is it uh, conservative? And really, it's its own thing. Those are completely life. relative terms. It's like <laughs> I've come to realize those are not objective terms as <laughs> as many in America would want to believe. But yeah, that is, that is fascinating, the implications. And so what are... What are some of your favorite interviews you've done? Uh, well, David Bentley Hart, definitely. I love talking to him. And uh, some people, sometimes they, they're they just sort of surprising. You know, you kind of go and you think, well, this is, you know, this will be good, but we'll see how it turns out. But I talked to this one guy called Mars, who's a rapper. And he uh, he just knows so much about Universal. And it's crazy. I would just ask a short question and then he could go on for 10, 15 minutes and talk about all these different things. I was like, well, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect a guy who focuses on rap music to have read a lot of theology, but he has. And so those are, you know, some, but I've really enjoyed uh, pretty much every interview. And sometimes you get people who haven't done interviews before, at least I have where I, I read an article they wrote or a book that they wrote. And then, you know, I have to do a good bit of editing out ums and ahs and stuff like that. And that's okay, but they still have something interesting and unique to say. So, um, you know, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of them. The the main three that I really wanted for the long documentary that I had done was definitely Thomas Talbot, David Bentley Hart, and Robin Perry. And I was so happy that I got all three of them. I really wanted Elario Romelli too, and that didn't work out. But those those were the big three that I wanted, and I got those, and I was just super happy when that happened. Have you ever talked with Ari Spivy or Spivey? I'm not sure how to say his name. Mm -hmm. You know who yeah. I'm talking about? Yeah, he actually lives an hour from my grandma's house. So if you, there's uh, three music videos on his YouTube channel that if you, if you watch until the credits, it's made by me. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's yeah, a cool I'm, guy. I'm hoping to have him on soon because mm -hmm. definitely, you know, especially in the past few years, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, representation and we definitely need more black voices within, um, black and women voices within, um, theology you know all of our theologians are white men <laughs> it's kind of sad well it's interesting too yeah sometimes you gotta uh just go looking right there's yeah. um i know there's a lutheran pastor over in africa who 
is uh, a universalist. I, don't, I can't remember his name right now, but I'll, I want to see if I can talk to him later. And um, But, you know, it's, it is interesting, too, how things catch on in certain ways at certain times. I'm sure if you were to try to find a universalist theologian in China right now, that'd be probably almost impossible, even though there's like a billion people. It'd be pretty tough, but because of the conditions of that country, the ways that the, you know, certain influences go on, there certain things catch on at certain times and places, and people happen to be white at those times, or they happen to not be at other times. But yeah, I definitely think universalism shouldn't just be, or any kind of theology, any kind of theology, really, it shouldn't just be, you know, a white guy thing. <laughs> It just often tends to be. Have Have you had any interviews with women? Oh, sure. Yeah, there's a person named Jean Wyatt who wrote a book called The Judges of Savior. She's a, um, over in England. And um, there's um, I'm, Diane Perkins Castro. She wrote a book that doesn't sound like it's a universalist book, Confessions of a Tomboy Grandma, but it's actually mainly theology. It's a lot of theology. Um, and I'm hoping to get a few people, uh, I'm, they're not confirmed yet, but for the documentaries I'll be shooting in person in the U.S. this summer, I'm hoping to get some people that'll be pretty interesting, I think. What's, what do you have next for your documentary? What's the topic or just I'm gonna try exploration? To, yeah, I'm going to try to shoot five at once. So it's kind of crazy. One of them is about David Bentley Hart specifically. So that one's yeah. about like his life and theology. Another one is about the image of God and humanity, what that means. Some of it will go wow. into um, anti-racist ideas. Mm. Know, basically how it doesn't make sense to be uh racist if you actually believe that each person was created in the image of god yeah that's um, great because and i think it has implications for universalism too but i'm not going to only interview universals for that i'm going to interview people that i think have something good to say about the image of god you gotta reach out to shane playborn that would be good yeah that'd be good that'd be a great one and so there are a few people that are confirmed though so one who's confirmed is david bentley hart because I wanted to confirm with him before I started to raise money. Another one is William Paul Young, author of The Shack, and another one is Brian, Brian Zond. So those three are confirmed right now. And then I have another uh, a long list of people that I have ideas of who to interview, and I'm hoping that they will, but I haven't asked them yet, because it's still a few months away before I go to the U.S., so we'll see yeah. how it works. It'd be sweet if you could talk to uh, like people like Jamar Tisby. He's really cool. Okay. I don't um, think I know him, so I'll look oh, him he's up. A He's he wrote um, the color of compromise, and that book was all about um, racism in the church in America. Mm -hmm. Really okay, great author, yeah. Demar Tisby, and another one is um, Esau. I think it's Esau Macaulay. I'll send these to you. Okay, sure. Esau yeah. Macaulay. He wrote he wrote reading reading while black, and it's all about um, how the black community in America has a different way of reading scripture through the, the lens of, of dealing with racism and slavery. And that's what I tried to interview Cornell West, but, oh. but man, how cool would it be to interview? I think he's never, he's never said anything that would explicitly imply it, but I mean, explicitly lay it out. If I yeah. you can't really explicitly imply something, but the, <laughs> but I think he's a universalist. I think he is. Oh, without a doubt. I'm, I'm positive that he's universalist because he he recognizes the image of God in all people, and he speaks about that pretty, pretty openly. And also, brother Trump. He always says, "Brother Trump." Brother Trump. Yeah. He, uh, come on, that's like you never hear you never hear a white evangelical referring to Biden as brother Biden <laughs> or brother oh, brother right. Sanders. No, he's a Marxist communist swine. Anyway, I'm lost. You. 
Your Wi-Fi has officially quit. Yeah, sorry, bro. <laughs> no, it's back. <laughs> it broke up for a bit. Yeah, that's good. It breaks up sometimes. Yeah, that's all right. You didn't miss anything. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's great. And, and you know, it's another great podcast you should check out is um the Bible for Normal People. Oh, Pete Enns. Yeah, I love him too. Pete I tried Enns, to reach but... out to him too, but I didn't get a response. But that's okay. Oh yeah, he would be great. You know, obviously he's more. He's definitely more from that progressive um, side of evangelicalism or maybe mainline. I think it might be mainline. Yeah, he's um, Episcopalian, I think. these Yeah, days, so mainline. I guess you'd call that mainline these days. Yeah. Episcopalians, pretty, they're pretty open about anything. You know, they're pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've considered Episcopalian. Actually, mm-hmm. more recently, I've really dr- been drawn by um, Eastern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had some really... It, I feel like my theology and the way I, I think about scripture and the church is very much Eastern Orthodox adjacent. And I'm hard pressed to find th- many things that I disagree with. And um, so it's very interesting. And and there's actually quite a few Eastern Orthodox churches um, in Massachusetts and right in my right in my city in Worcester. Oh, but um, yeah. what are there any has, did the Eastern Orthodox ever make it to South America? <laughs> oh, yeah, there are some for sure. Yeah. Um, there's yeah there's some anglicans too and and the there's um i think there's other versions of orthodox around so i think there's one not too far from my house even i is i i don't think it's i think it's like egyptian orthodox or something. i'm trying oh, to remember like coptic i i'm trying to remember if it was coptic it maybe but anyway it's yeah the priest i haven't visited i went to the facebook page to see if i would like to visit it and the priest is like he's not from here like he he moved here yeah um yeah and i can't remember exactly but it, it's somewhere over there yeah but it's like um it's not like greek or russian orthodox mm-hmm. it's a different orthodox but yeah they, but yeah there's a there's a lot of different churches around especially in the big city i'm in a big city i'm in santa cruz bolivia so it's you know millions of people so there's a there's a number Holy of churches around here yeah yeah <laughs> just like out in california too yeah yeah there's a lot of santa cruzes in the world yeah of course yeah santa yeah. cruzes all those catholic um colonized catholic communities <laughs> yeah conquested yeah we have we have a holy cross um university the holy cross college in in worcester it's pretty mm-hmm. world famous as well a lot of famous people oh, okay are you familiar with like the the catholic worker movement i think i've heard of it but i don't really know much about it no you got to check out like dorothy day and peter morin they they um they founded the catholic worker movement and there's a lot of really i mean most of them have that they're more justice social justice minded and mm-hmm. taking care of the poor and the homeless working and praying kind of like mm-hmm. almost like a monastic lifestyle but um they're rebels they're renegades of the catholic church mm-hmm. who who are more focused on justice and almost all of them are universalists from, from my mm-hmm. experience or in some way shape or form <laughs> or maybe they don't really contemplate it maybe it's just not really even on i think i think especially as evangelicals we're obsessed with the topic because yeah. we've been because when we think of the gospel, the gospel is all about escaping hell. But mm-hmm. then you go to study the historic what what the gospel means historically, and you realize it doesn't really have much to do with hell or going to heaven, which is really mm-hmm. fascinating. How, what, what have you learned of that? Well, the well, you know, I still I do have a bigger focus on the afterlife than uh, maybe a lot of people probably because I I think. Um, there was this one thing that Stephen Fry talked about once in this interview, a kind of famous interview with him, where he said that um, he doesn't want an afterlife because it, if you have the same thing for too long, you'll get bored 
And um, because like, you know, you don't want a party to go on forever. Uh, but, you know, when I think of that, what he said, it doesn't really make sense to me because when he talks about how a party will, you know, like a birthday party or whatever, will will phase out, you'll leave it and you'll remember it and you'll appreciate it for what it was, but you don't want it to go on forever. In, in that situation, you're still remembering it. You're still existing in a way that you can think about the party that you had. You're just not having a party forever, right? And so I still think, yeah, I definitely focus on the afterlife a lot. Not as like the, I don't want to go around thinking like everything that we do now uh, has, we have to always be thinking about the afterlife, right? But I do think there's, you know, a lot of implications in that everything we do does somehow touch eternity. And I think that does that does matter. And I imagine that even the people who are saying we should focus on here and now, maybe like Dorothy Day, I, I know a little bit about her, uh, but not that much. But a lot of people who say that we should focus on the here and now, I still think that when they're Christians, generally the reason they say that is because they do think it it matters for eternity what we do here and now matters for eternity and you know like N.T. Wright too surprised by hope part of his main thesis in that book is like you don't want to be that kind of evangelical that says let this world burn up because we're going to get out of here because he's saying no this world that you're in now that's going to be the same world later it's just going to be dramatically changed and renewed by Christ but it's still the same world so you do have to care about it but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, the the idea of all of us coming to better conclusions, coming to better unity, holiness, and happiness together in the far future, and, and you know, what talking about it now would be considered an afterlife, that, yeah, now, that does still play a big part in my theology, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, and I'm clearly, and, and especially, but I think it's especially because um it's a big focus in more western traditions even in the catholicism there's a big focus on the afterlife but what's what's really surprising to me is that yes evangelicalism especially um you know protestant they they and maybe this comes from kind of that hard line calvinism and and a big part of it too is revivalism from the 1800s into the 1900s as well um, this whole concept of like, you have a choice right now, make your decision to, to say, you know, verbally that Jesus is Lord. If you don't say these words, then, um, if you don't think this thoughts, if you don't think these certain thoughts about God, a certain way, if you don't, um, mentally ascend to these propositions, then God's gonna, um, make you pay, you know, it, and it, and it often becomes just about, um just about mentally ascending to certain propositions which is it's very weird because when you look at catholicism and even eastern orthodox there's a much more focus on our works there's much more focus on what we do and i like i like the concept of spiritual formation too like we are being spiritually formed through our life through our actions through how we act um how how we treat others and it makes sense, you know, if I were to be a traditionalist, it would make sense from that perspective to think of it as like, you're being formed this way through, through your life. And when you get, when you actually finally meet God, um, you're, you're just going to keep doing what you were doing on earth. You know, you're going to keep rejecting mm -hmm. God because 
you you've spiritually deformed yourself to this certain point and that, that's kind of what nt Wright's idea of hell looks like too it's like this form of spiritual deformation where you almost cease to be human the, the image of god almost leaves you in this in this weird sense but then are you even you that's the question like who's actually being who's actually being punished for eternity is it even you anymore you know and that that's <laughs> what really begs the question and i guess that could be a case for annihilationism where it's not necessarily that god's destroying you but that you um you're becoming so spiritually deformed that you're um you're becoming so spiritually deformed that the image of god in you no longer exists uh, and you you cease to be and you're you're something other um, mm -hmm. which which at that point is like well what was the point of your life then <laughs> <laughs> well that's one of the things i'm hoping to ask people when i make that documentary about the image of god is do you think that the image of god can be lost do you think it can be completely erased one of the things i hope to do is talk to a drug rehab center down here actually and they're not universalists but i i know some of them because uh, down here um in bolivia there's something called clefa which is a, a glue it's a very like um i don't know what you call it. it's like brown glue it's like very cheap kind of like it's a... like for woodworking and Gorilla stuff like glue. that kind of like gorilla glue but much stronger you can smell it from a distance really and that's how that's how people use it is they sniff they buy it uh, very cheaply and they sniff it out of a bottle right and it, it really can mess up your brain like physically really? you can mess up it can mess up your brain and so you know a number of homeless people uh that you can see around here will have the glue because it's really cheap and because it will get you high in a certain way and so this organization is you know working with kids. a lot of them are kids that are teenagers or younger even and um they're working with these uh people who have become you know kind of physically messed up in some ways it's almost irreversible in the physical form obviously that they have now and uh so something i want to ask them and i know how they're going to answer right because they're an organization working with these people i know they're going to say no the image of god can't be erased you can you can hurt yourself or, and I mean, a lot of times, obviously, the people that are doing these kinds of things, they're not just hurting themselves out of nowhere, right? They're hurting themselves because they were born into a basically a horrible situation in a, in a lot of ways. And, you know, some of the kids that are homeless on the street, they're like, they're legit, like they're, they don't have parents or they their parents, it's worse for them to be with their parents than to just be like living in a gutter, actually. And so, the can you erase the image of God? No. You know, I, and I want to hear that from them, and I want to hear that from a number of other theologians and thinkers as well, because the image of God, it it's the deepest part of you. And if it's the deepest part of you, you can't become this sort of animalistic uh, shadow being that N.T. Wright would talk about, I wouldn't think. You could maybe start approaching what we would think of that, but if that's the deepest part of you, then yeah, the only option really would be annihilation if there was something besides universal salvation. But I think it makes the most sense you know you talked about how people you could argue that people keep doing what they do and keep living how they live after they they die in their physical bodies and i do think that to a certain extent people probably will continue in a number of ways to reject god uh, in the next life but the question is Not whether forever. They'll do it forever yeah the yeah. question is whether god will keep doing what he's doing whether he'll keep reaching out in a number of ways in all kinds of ways for for all kinds of very extended you know amounts of time if we talk about time in the next life but um and we know where sin abounds grace abounds all the more and if sin keeps abounding then grace will keep abounding all the more and all mm -hmm. the more and all the more and so no the image of god won't be lost in everybody and it will be even more amazing 
than we even can think of when we see all these different people who one or another person might say, oh, that person seems almost not human to me now. And in the future, you may think, well, they're more human than I could have ever imagined them to be when you see them later. They're going to be the dogs outside the city, right? (laughs) They're going to turn into dogs. That's what's going to happen. Even if, uh, even by uh, um, David Bentley Hart's theology, even the dogs will be more amazing dogs than we could have ever imagined. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, because he's into the, that was something that was very interesting and I was happy that I got to talk to him about that in his very first interview. He's one of the few people I know that actually talks about animals uh-huh. being a part of universal restoration. Most of the time it's focused on humans and obviously that makes sense because we're humans, but it's interesting to talk to him about that too. Well, when you have Jesus saying, Behold, I make all things new. And, and what more could he be talking about than all things? Like that kind of includes all things, right? And that mm-hmm. does that mean every animal, every insect? You know, that's something that it kind of I think it's beyond our comprehension. Plus, like in our in our minds, because we have a scarce scarcity mindset, like we only have so many years, we only have so many resources, we only have so much life. So in our minds, we're always thinking about scarcity. Um we only have so much money. We only have so much time. But let's talk about eternity and let's talk about the infinite. And let's talk about the truly good and the true and the love, the true, like uh the fullest idea of love, infinite love. And um now at that point, it's possible. If if nothing's beyond, if God created all things, then why couldn't he restore all things? That really begs the question. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. How how many things we'll be surprised by in the future I'm sure oh we yeah we're gonna yeah. i think i think we're all gonna be we're all gonna be um you know when we meet god obviously i think the initial like, initial responses are gonna be us on our knees and our prostrate and then he'll probably pick us up and be like okay let me show you the ropes this is what eternity looks like <laughs> so like how how about your your spiritual walk like personally how how has making making these these um these interviews and having these discussions how has that changed you uh well since i started after i had already become convinced of universalism it hasn't changed my mind in that sense but it has made me uh you know just learning more and more about the subject and become more and more convinced of it i guess in a number of ways and uh and also be you know, surprised by how many different kinds of people believe it. They could be Anglican, they could be uh, part of a Pentecostal uh, group, they could be part of the, uh, what's called, Charismatic Episcopal Church, or um, different Baptist churches. And yeah, there's, it's all across the denominational spectrums of kinds of people who hold to at least versions of a universal restoration rooted in Christ. So that's always been great to, you know, learn more about that, to be more confirmed in believing in universalism spiritually i mean speaking like more emotionally it's just been like i talked about before that you can just have these moments where you you really catch it or you really uh have like a glimpse of it in a deeper more emotional way where you're like wow this if this is true and i think it is then everything is going to be better than i could ever imagine and it really blows me away and there's there's this story in uh thomas talbot's book where he's talking about how you know so many people when they read the jacob and esau story they think esau is the one who goes to hell forever or however they want to interpret it esau is 
the guy who's rejected, especially because once you read Roman, you know, Romans, uh, you know, Paul makes that comparison of Jacob and Esau and um, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And obviously you got to look at how that word hate was used and back in the day and all that kind of stuff. But when Jacob meets Esau again, he says, it's like, I've seen the face of God and he's being reunited with his brother. And when you think of all that kind of stuff that's going to happen in the future, how many brothers are going to be reunited with brothers and mothers with daughters and friends with friends and people that hated each other, people that really hated each other? How many people are going to forgive each other, are going to love each other, and are going to help each other grow and grow in understanding and holiness and, and happiness? And it's it's incredible. It's obviously overwhelming if you were to really try to think about it. We can't hold all that all those pictures in our minds, but it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so it had it definitely has pro practical implications on your faith. You feel like mm -hmm. if you hadn't um, gone on this journey exploring this topic, do you think your your faith would have died out, or do you think you think it just would have looked differently? Do you think you know? Often I I like to challenge myself with this question. Well, what if what if the traditional opinion or idea is true, and what if what if the traditional idea uh traditional doctrine that's been held by the majority is true um is jesus still enough for me you know and and that's kind of it's a difficult question because it makes me wonder am i just grasping at straw am i just grasping at this because because of my flesh or 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 is this truly a a a, a spiritual um like when, when you think about like the flesh versus the spirit, right? Like the flesh is their sin nature and the spirit is, is the spirit of God in us. Is this truly the spirit of God in me? That's, that's wanting me to believe in the salvation of all people, or is this just the flesh in me that wants to believe that there's hope in all people, you know? And, and that really is a difficult question. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those tough questions because once you come to believe in universalism, you sort of, at least in my case, it seems this way, it'd be very hard to go back, right? It'd be yeah, very it hard is. to be like, oh, well, maybe it is true that some people are going to be tortured for, or back to what I had believed, which was annihilation for a long time. But the, um, you know, some people might question anybody who believes in universal and say but the bible teaches that some people will be tortured forever would you you have to accept what the bible says and uh, i well i don't believe that the bible says that but the question too is um you know you can come up with a lot of hypotheticals that you could ask an evangelical person where if the if the the bottom line is you have to accept what the bible says no matter before even opening the book and analyzing it then you know, you could ask somebody, would you accept what the Bible says if the Bible said Jesus Christ is evil, completely evil, and the devil is good? The devil is good. Everything that the devil does is the best thing to do. Everything that Jesus does in this book is the worst thing to do. And if you were to ask somebody, would you accept that? <laughs> you can't accept that because that's the exact opposite of what Christianity is. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's a hard question to answer. Somebody would like, if, if the Bible taught you that some people would be tortured forever, uh, would you accept that? Then it's sort of like saying, well, if the Bible wasn't the Bible, would you accept the Bible? If Jesus wasn't Jesus, would you accept Jesus? It's like, well, I don't know what, I don't know how to answer. A it just question becomes that's... ridiculous at some point. It's like, is, <laughs> yeah. is what if two plus two was five? You know? <laughs> yeah. And two plus two is five. And many, many people are being tortured forever. So the stakes yeah. are high. <laughs> yeah. And the stakes you're like, are high. 
you're like um well it's very it's like if your dad hated you would you still love him and the the answer is if i'm being like jesus hopefully yes i would but it would be a lot harder right mm-hmm. my dad wouldn't be my dad at least he wouldn't be very much like the dad i know now if he was that way i mean obviously biologically he would be my dad but his character would be so different if he hated me that it's very hard to think of those kinds of hypothetical situations so it's it's a hard question to answer and it's, i definitely don't i don't see any good reasons as to why i would go back to rejecting uh, any kind of universal salvation i mean there are some arguments some people got kind of upset with me when i made the documentary because i left out an argument about a certain verse in Matthew where it says that uh, he can destroy both the body and soul in Gehenna. And so I left out some annihilationist arguments in there um, and a couple of annihilationist or uh, conditional immortality advocates were upset with me that I had taken, that I hadn't included those parts in the final product. But to me, it sort of felt like it was going to just be expanding on one verse for like 10 minutes, giving yeah. the different perspectives. And I, the movie was almost already two hours. I didn't want to make yeah. it too long. And so in my mind, it was like, this is sort of a big picture thing that I was wanting to do. I didn't want to focus very much on, because this one verse, this one verse that says that he can, in other words, he has the power to do something, mm-hmm. wasn't going to change my whole theology anyway. No. I don't know if it would for some people. Maybe that was what the people who were upset with me were thinking was that it, it really would make be a make or break case for some people, but I don't see why it would be. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those most one of the most obscure things that Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus ever said. And also it can't you have to take into the account like in NT Wright and a lot of other conservative uh folks, even Andrew Horonich really helped me understand this too. This the concept of preterism, understanding like well, um, that Jesus was most likely talking about the Romans destroying the body and throwing you in Gehenna, which is literally what happened. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that aside, yeah, um, it always, it seems like it always comes back to, um, are we able to trust the character of God? Is God love, you know, um, at the end of the day, God, is God love is like, two plus two equals four it makes sense right if god is not love it's like two plus two equals five it doesn't it doesn't make sense and it it doesn't work um and you know for me i don't i don't feel the need to hold on to universalism dogmatically or doctrinally necessarily although that's where i lean i guess like for me it's it worked it for me it's like I believe that God has the power to save all people and he most likely will, but there's a chance that maybe some will be lost. And and that's only because I only say that because I'm not God and I don't know. But that being said, I trust the character of God. I trust that he really is. He really understands everything and he really, he knows the heart of all people. And also He's the one for whom all things were made. And that that's really, I think a lot of people like free will libertarians, they they think like they think like people are just like these um removed from from creation in, in a sense. Like they don't they don't recognize that like people were created for by God for God. So it's like for them to be able to free will reject God is like 
denying their own existence. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really make any sense, which I guess could be an argument for annihilationism in that what sense. But but anyway, I digress on that point. I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but but yeah, thanks for your answer. It, it is an interesting question and it, it is challenging. It's like, well, what if God truly isn't interested or in the business? What if that's not the story he's telling? And that's what I've heard before. Well, that's not the story that God is telling. That's that's an it's a great story. It's a great sounding story, but it's not the one that God is telling. Well, um, what if that's true? Am I still going to hold on to Jesus? Am I still going to uh, believe in the gospel? Am I still going to go to church? You know, and at the end of the day, I think maybe it's like above our pay grade to, to even ask these questions, yet we still do because we're seeking and we're. And, and I think what's, what makes it important too is that um, when we ask these questions, you know, I say David Bentley Hart doesn't have a pastoral heart, but he does because he really cares about the spiritual abuse that has occurred for people who have who've really taken this to heart and believe like most of humanity is gonna burn forever where where a, a select few are gonna um experience bliss in heaven um that has hurt a lot of people and it's also distracted a lot of people from the true mission and gospel of jesus as well which is which is new creation which is restoration which is the kingdom of god which is both here now and and in the age to come, and and I think when we when we focus on Jesus and and start with Him, um, it may well lead us, and 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 actually live out the kingdom of God, actually live out the Sermon on the Mount. It may well lead us to universalism. It may well not, but it's going to have practical implications on the way we live our life, regardless. And I don't need I don't need universalism to be true for that to be the case. But at the same time, it's it's, st it's still the best story, you know. <clears throat> the, I mean, you're definitely right. I think that universalism is about the character of God, right? That's what it's all about at the foundation in the end, right? So if, you know, somebody who believes in annihilation will say God is love. Somebody who believes in eternal torment will say God is love. And a universalist will obviously say God is love. But which one makes the most sense with that statement, God is love? I, you know, I think it is universalism, obviously. And it is a tough question, though, how essential is it to the gospel? Is, is it to the gospel? There are some people who say universalism is the gospel. So it, it is the gospel that all people will be saved. Well, if that's the case, then it, Jesus preached the gospel in a fairly roundabout way. He, he declared the kingdom of God. And I do think he preached a number of things that you can say that's universalism, like the, uh, you know, uh, the, pa the not a pastor. In Spanish, a pastor is a person who goes with sheep. What is shepherd? A shepherd, yeah, a shepherd. So <laughs> yeah, so the shepherd, <laughs> the shepherd who you know goes after the the very last sheep, the woman looking for the coins, and the prodigal son returning to the waiting father. But um, if it's true that universalism, the declaration of universalism, is the gospel, then yeah, Jesus didn't preach in a very straightforward way. So I, you know, I've talked to different people about what they think of, of how closely related universalism is to the gospel. I think we can say pretty consistently, though, that universalism was a natural consequence of the gospel, the gospel that um, God is love, that Jesus is Lord, that the kingdom of God is among us, that um, Jesus did finished. declare, Jesus did declare and demonstrate to us the nature of God, that he is God, the father, which mm -hmm. I talked to some Jewish folk and they say, well, we've always thought that God was father, even, even before Jesus. So he was mm -hmm. just he was just 
highlighting something that was already within the Jewish tradition, this idea of God being father and the idea of, of us being sons of God too. Um, but then that, you know, in the way he treated outsiders in that society, um, he, he recognized the image of God in the prostitutes, in the tax collectors, and in such a way that, you know, it's, it's fascinating that the harshest words that he had was for people who are closest to religious power and, and authority, which I, I think, I feel like we have to, we can't forget that and, and let ourselves get too, um, too haughty too, because like, there is that, the aspect, I think that, I think that is like the always going to be an issue in this fallen world that the closer you are to power, the more closer you are to corruption, the farther you are from the kingdom of God, the first will be last, the last will be first. Um, the least of the, the least will be the greatest, the greatest will be the least, you know, you have this upside down vision of Jesus. But so like, there are these necessary, there are necessary implications of what Jesus taught that will lead us to, to universalism. And I think ironically, one of the passages that actually led me in the direction of universalism was Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, not the part about casting into the, like going into, uh, um, these will be cast away into the eternal fire with the devils and their angels and whatever. Um, not that part, but the part where Jesus said, I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me water. I was naked and you clothed me. I was homeless and you gave me somewhere to stay, et cetera. And we can go on and on. It's like, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. And I think that's probably the strongest case for universalism in Jesus's words, because he's, what he's saying is Jesus is, is us. <laughs> he's, he's all of us, all people, especially those without power and privilege which has implications in politics as implications in our eth in Christian ethics in the world. But like um, when you really follow that strain out, it's like, it, I think that's great that you're pursuing um, that concept of the image of God in your documentary, even, even if you're listening to many voices. And I think it's important too, to listen to many voices, not just universalist voices too. Um, in that, cause it really does beg the question. Well, if, if you can't lose the image of God, then um that will anybody ever lose the image of god you know uh it really does beg a question <clears throat> yeah it's interesting actually some people who defend eternal torment like william lane craig and think of and others they'll use the image of god as their uh, sort of an anti-annihilationist stance they'll say no god won't let his image be destroyed and you think, well, that's a nice argument for universalism. The way you're using it is awfully weird, though, that God won't let his image be destroyed, so he'll let it be tortured forever, which sounds pretty bad. But yeah, if God won't let his image be destroyed, he'll let it be restored. But I think even more than let it, he will, he will guide it. He will bring the grace for it. He'll, he'll bring, on, you know, whatever uh, is needed that's holy and good for the restoration of the image in somebody. And so, yeah, I think it's a strange argument that some people have used about the image of God to defend eternal torment, but I think it makes much more sense with universalism. Yeah. Well, Stephen, it's getting late, and I don't want to take too much of your time, but you have any final thoughts? Uh, well, it's something that you did mention a little while ago that's interesting. Uh, you know, you can see universalism in a lot of ways once you um, start to 
read verses a little differently than you used to because you had mentioned about how the pharisees and the kingdom of heaven and how jesus was fairly harsh with the the you know the religious leaders of the day and stuff but if there's one line i can't remember the exact verse but jesus says something about these people speaking of the uh people who the pharisees did not think were going to inherit the kingdom mm -hmm. of god these people will be there before you They'll they're just going to walk right in you. basically <laughs> yeah and what's what's interesting is a lot of people read that and they think oh the pharisees those are the guys who, you know, if they were to die, they'd go to hell or whatever. That's not what Jesus said, though. He basically said, they'll get in and you'll get in too later, wow. <laughs> which is a universalist thing to say. <laughs> yeah, I've recognized that so, too. Yeah, there's a lot of things weird. you can see later on in the Bible. You go, oh, that's that's that lines up perfectly with universalism. And I think it's because it was meant to and we we kind of messed up <laughs> in reading it for a long time. Well, you know, at the end of the day, if we don't become if we don't become if nobody, if not everybody becomes universalist, I think everybody should take Jesus's word seriously. Mm -hmm. And and that should have an effect on how they view the world around them, how they view the people around them. Because ultimately Jesus's message was about our relationships with others. And I think people lose sight of that. They think Jesus's messages was just about escaping hell and going to heaven as an individual, you know, but it really, the whole Sermon on the Mountain is how do we treat other people? that that um tells us whether or not we're in the kingdom of god or not you will know they will know we are christians by our love a new commandment i give to you love one another as i have loved you and and how how, how is it that jesus loved others well by laying down his life and his privileges and his powers for the sake of others and if that if that doesn't if that doesn't sink in then it's like universalism, traditionalism, annihilation, and aside. It's like all that stuff doesn't matter. But like, how are we really practically living our lives? Now, I think like having a universalist perspective helps you because then you're no longer othering other people. Now you're thinking of everybody, even your enemies. Oh, that that's another point too. Love your enemies as yourself. Um, well, if Jesus, yeah, if Jesus <laughs> tells us to love our enemies, then how does what how does he treat his enemies? How can he ask us to do something that he doesn't do that that he doesn't yeah that he doesn't do himself yeah that's a really and good you, point and you know the it's interesting there's this one uh line i'm trying to remember if it was in the god delusion or not but anyway um so a lot of people will criticize richard dawkins and people who believe in evolution by saying but if we evolve to have these certain ethics they're not grounded in anything very substantial if we just evolved to preserve ourselves basically and what Dawkins says is a very strange little line about how the idea that somebody would sacrifice themselves to save a kid who's not their offspring, not related to them at all, say, or even an animal, even a dog, they'll, they'll sacrifice a lot of time, maybe even their lives to save a dog or something. You know, these kinds of self-sacrifices, these are blessed Darwinian mistakes, he calls them, blessed Darwinian mistakes, which is a very strange line because he, obviously, he still thinks that it's a positive thing, but he doesn't think from a darwinian perspective he thinks it's a mistake basically but uh, i i do have a uh a, a thing where i kind of think that there's there are some blessed inconsistencies i think in people's theologies because a lot of people that i know who do believe in eternal torment they're lo more loving people than me mm. and i don't think that's i don't think that's because they believe in eternal torment <laughs> yeah i think it's despite it which means what you know what a powerful force they'd be if they believed in universalism right <clears throat> But um, it's it is it is sort of a blessed inconsistency, I think, on their part, 
that they would hold to an eternal torment view of God, and yet they would, in the end, have this um, strange disconnect between their image of God that they hold to formally, although they may not hold to it really, but that they hold to formally, at least, that they accept it, uh, you know, when the pen comes to the paper to sign a statement of faith or something like that, but that they're actually very loving people. Mm. And so I think that's... Uh, that's great, obviously. If it was the other way around, it's much worse, obviously. If you believe in universalism and you treat people like garbage, that's I would take the the former idea of the people who hold to eternal torment but are very loving. I would take that yeah. you know, in a heartbeat over the inconsistent universalist. We don't yeah. want people to be consistent and burn, burn heretics against the stakes because they believe that that's what God's going to do to them anyway. No Please way. don't be yeah. consistent. That's a <laughs> yeah. cursed consistency. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> wow. So so how can people, obviously people can find you Love Unrelenting on Facebook. Uh, sorry, uh, YouTube. YouTube, yeah. Subscribe, yeah. watch all those videos, check out your documentary. It's for free on YouTube. Great documentary. Mm -hmm. I watched like three quarters of it a couple oh, months thanks. ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. I need to get all the way through that's it. Fine. Well, now it's I'm going to go back. Now I'm going to go back. Now this reminds me, I'm going to go back and watch the whole thing because it's great. <laughs> I mean, you, and you have traditionalists on there. You have uh, annihilationists like Chris Dates on there. And then, mm -hmm. of course, you have universalists. So I love how you gave like a well-rounded um, a well-rounded um, view of, and, you know, it's a lot of interviews, which can make it, it's, it's more like academic in that sense. Whereas like, you yeah. know, was it Kevin Miller? his hellbound is a great documentary but his mm -hmm. is kind of like more fast-paced and like playful and I mean, obviously you know he has years of experience making documentaries but yeah i mean it was, it was great it's great though if you really want to be patient and watch <laughs> watch through because obviously you had to cut out <laughs> a lot of stuff even to make it almost yeah. two hours but it's still worth the listen you know what's great too is just stick it on your your speaker while you're doing dishes and listen to it you know or while you're driving yeah, I mean, yeah, you can definitely listen to a lot of it. You know, the images are uh, just kind of supporting the stuff that people are talking about a lot of mm -hmm. times. You could definitely, it could almost be a podcast if somebody wanted to do it that. It could yeah. be, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which, I mean, right now we're we're getting on two hours. So, I mean, people will listen to this for two hours. They'll listen to that <laughs> for two hours. Probably yeah. get a lot more out of it than this conversation. But yeah. still, it's just great to hear your experience of, you know, as it pertains to your spiritual heritage and your journey in faith and how this con this this whole topic of universal salvation has really had um, effect and, and it has effect on a lot of people, even if it just disrupts your mindset and and you don't actually hold to universalism. I think that's just good. You know, I think it's good just to disrupt the status quo in our minds. And, and I think that's often what Jesus was doing was disrupting the status quo kind of breaking people out of their paradigms um waking them up and that's what the christian church was doing too they in max it says that they were turning the whole world upside down mm -hmm. which makes sense i mean if they were really living out the way of jesus then the first were being last the last were being first those with power were being brought low those without power were being brought up it's a different kind of world and that makes mm -hmm. sense why they'd say that but yeah anyway ha sido un placer Conocerte y hablar contigo. Muchas gracias. Dios te bendiga y te cuide. Igualmente, muchas gracias. Muchas gracias. Tenga una buena noche. Duerma. Descanse en paz.
<laughs> no, sleep well. Sleep well. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath It's not an easy path But I'm willing to trust Though I'm dying in the dust Thank you.